HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio. This is your host, Severin. I'm coming to you from the snowy side of Lake Champlain. I'm actually in Vermont today, and I'm on the phone with Solomon. Hello, Solomon. Good morning, Severin. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Pretty good. Warming up here, actually. We are uh, coming off a pretty long uh, cold spell of probably on the average of minus 10 degrees for, I would say, close to 30 days coming off December. So we're up to 55 today. Things are drying out. We can see the ground. So we're all happy, happy here. Yeah, happy, happy. We we got the slush. We heard it's going to be 52 degrees here on Thursday, and we were down to negative 17. I can can relate. Are Are you guys getting enough precipitation up there? Well, um, you know... It's it's still kind of dry. We got some snow at the end of December, uh, got some rains about, I don't know, two weeks ago or so, but uh, it's fairly dry. We get about 20 inches of annual precip here or under, so um, we're high desert. We're kind of where the Sierra Nevada meets the Great Basin of Nevada State, so. So let's get started and get a little description of your farm and the land that's around it, uh, and a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, um, I live in Loyalton, California, uh, originally from San Francisco. So, um, Loyalton is in the northeastern side of Sierra County. Um, We're about 50 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, and... uh, we are uh, about elevation of 4950 and uh population is probably around 
800 or so. It kind of fluctuates. People move in and out of here. Um, and we have mountains ranging, you know, anywhere from six to 8,000 feet. Um, our valley is the biggest alpine valley in the United States at 120 acres, 120,000 acres. Um, and we also are the second smallest uh, that is populated county in California. So, um, nice and pretty rural. nice and quiet out here. A lot of ranches, a lot of farms. Um, the major industries in the area were ranching, farming, and of course timber, um, which isn't as much, but we do still have some timber going on here. Um, and our little place oh. is 60 acres. Um, it's kind of a you know, high desert sagebrush, rangeland, um, predominantly people run cattle and sheep out here, um, quite a bit of hay. Um, we're known for our alfalfa, for dairy farms out on the coast, in places like Marin and Sonoma counties where they have quite a bit of dairies. Um, so we've got lots of good alfalfa up here. Um, and uh, we're kind of just trying to get into the grain aspect of things, too. I'll get into that a little bit more. A um, little bit about myself is I grew up in San Francisco. Um, I was born in upstate New York in Lewiston, outside of Buffalo, and I didn't spend any time there, so I've pretty much lived my life in California and San Francisco pre- predominantly. And uh, I kind of attribute my love of agriculture to my mother, whom I just unfortunately lost in November, but uh, she you know, was always really good about getting me outdoors, doing things. Um, We had quite a few friends that had small farms and ranches in Northern California and Southern Oregon. So she got me up there doing that. She got me horseback riding lessons in Golden Gate Park when I was like seven years old and uh, really fell in love with horsemanship and later on actually went to college for that, for equine studies. Um... So I've always just loved outdoors, loved agriculture, loved being in the dirt, being around animals, and uh, my mom always assured me that if I wanted to do that, I'd have to do it when I grow up. So here I am. Um, All grown up. And and what attracted you to the area in which you live? Well, um, initially, my partner, Bronwyn, her mother lived up here across the mountain in Sierra City, which is a... Uh, little gold mining town, and we'd come up from San Francisco on our visits, and we just love the area. There's tons of lakes here, tons of fishing, tons of rivers, um, mountains, hiking, biking, uh, boating. I mean, just anything you need to do outdoors, you can do it here. And uh, we always were kind of going to move to Nevada City Grass Valley area because they had a really nice young population of people uh, doing agriculture. And uh, just a great community there. But uh, so I was taking fire science classes in San Francisco at the time, just trying to find a way to get out of San Francisco. And I thought, well, you can fight fire anywhere. And uh, we came up for a trip. I put an application in in Quincy with the Forest Service. By the time I drove back to San Francisco, I had the job. That was 20 years ago. I've been here ever since. Wow, that's a great, that's a great path to ruralizing. Learn the skills yeah. of firefighting. Now, there's one I haven't heard before. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's a good. One. That's such a good one for my list. Yeah. All right. So I'm there's not all kinds of ways you can get into a yeah. rural area. You just have to 
kind of think about it, and if you're an industrious person, you can make anything happen, I think. so. Yeah, a lot of ways to crack that nut. That's right. Oh, man, I cherish this new example. Okay, so there you are 20 years later, uh, and you guys are running a very diversified operation. Uh, yes. What's your, what are your markets there? Well, um, I, quite truthfully, this will be the first year we really start jumping out there up until now. So we've been here for going on. This will be our fourth year. Um, we moved from, well, only 30 miles away. We have 10 acres just to the west of here, um, which is, this is the valley. So once you get west of here, it turns kind of more into tree cover. Um, and anyways, our 10 acres is, we homesteaded there. Um, and quite frankly, for the first five years, we homesteaded. I mean, we were the last of the pioneers. We didn't have running water, electricity, any of that. The only utility we actually had was a telephone box on a tree um, because we <laughs> were starting to have kids and we needed a way if, to keep in touch with our family and if any emergencies happened. So we hauled water. We had propane stove, propane refrigerator, um, I mean, the whole nine yards, and uh, my partner's brother lives next door to us, and he did the same thing. Um, so we did that for five years, and then one day Wasn't we came it awesome? home. It was awesome. We loved it, although if you talk to uh, <laughs> Bronwyn, she might tell you something different. <laughs> but uh, so one day we came home, and we had a red tag on our properties, that said, uh, stop all building. I mean, we were young, and we thought, hey, you know, we want to build log cabins. We want a homestead. Um, little did we know, we live in the great state of California, and uh, they don't really approve of that sort of thing here. Um, as a matter of fact, the uh, building inspector told us, if you want to do that kind of thing, you need to move up to Montana. So <laughs> we uh, very quickly pulled lots of permits, um, pulled our septic permit, and we actually, both us and uh, Bronwyn's brother, Evan, dug our septic systems and our leach fields by hand. Because we were young, we had more time than money. Um, and we actually passed through county. So, and then we got wells and uh, just got on the payroll after that. So we were all legal. But, uh, yeah, we, we were the last people to really <laughs> do some pioneering in this area. So. <laughs> Okay, so you got through that phase, and, and, and then you entered into this new phase where more with children, and then you started bringing uh, animals in. We started bringing animals in. You know, I mean, this whole venture started with just wanting to have some good food for ourselves. Um, and uh, on that piece of property, we, we learned a lot of things. We learned animal husbandry. We learned gardening and, uh, you know, plant propagation and growing things and um, just trying to... Uh, be good stewards, and uh, through time, I just enjoyed it so much that I wanted to take it to the next level, and, uh, I, I, you know, I've always liked agriculture. I also um, worked on some pretty good-sized ranches and farms around here, conventional in nature, and uh, so I learned some things there, what to do and some things what not to do are things that I don't totally agree with, but um, that's neither here nor there. So, um, I, you and know, you're still I've been spending a lot of time in... with horses or no? Excuse me? Oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt you, but I said, were you also still involved with horse, a horse 
Yes, at uh, that world? point, I was um, going to Feather River College in the equine studies program. I was also taking uh, ecosystem management classes, um, doing a lot of stream restoration, uh, TSI work, just all range management and that sort of deal. And uh, actually had a, a big interest in that because uh, I always loved being a horseback and I was trying to put being horseback along with uh, range management and stuff. And then the Forest Service through government uh, budget cuts kind of got rid of that. So uh, anyways, yeah, horses have always been a big part of my life. I, I actually always wanted to farm and ranch with a uh, draft team of Belgian horses, but uh, I find that I, I really don't have the time, and so we're kind of mechanized here. But. So when you are doing those jobs, uh, well, I don't want to skip any over anything because this is interesting, um, but when you were getting those jobs on the ranches, were you working animals, were you working cattle with horses, or were you able to do that on horseback, or what kind of jobs were you able to get as a new you know, you're a newbie in town. You got there because of fire and rangeland work. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes I think it's with, with ranching so hard to get into. It's good to just hear the stories of what kind of informal employment you can you can get if you show up. Well, um, it was hard back then, and I, I, I still think it's equally as hard now um, because generally ranchers, um, they're family operations, so they have their kids there, their families, their extended families, and uh, uh, generally have all the help they need right on site there. Um, so it was hard, but I, I knew some people, and they knew I was a pretty good hand, and they knew I was uh, enrolled in college at Feather River in the Equine Studies Program, which helped, and my teacher was a great catalyst in uh, getting me jobs. Um, yeah, to answer your question, a lot of that was a horseback, cowboying, um, and then quite a bit of, you know, just tractor work. But um, it was kind of not the same way I go about things. You know, it wasn't like we were harvest things and then putting cover crops and this and that. It was a, a total conventional model of production. Um, but I, I learned a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, kind of back when I was getting into agriculture, it's a little different than the great movement that we have here now for beginning and young farmers because I've a lot of people were kind of negative. They were kind of like, you can't get in agriculture if you weren't born into it or you didn't marry into it. I heard that so much coming up. And uh, it was really kind of discouraging, but I didn't let that stop me. You know, I always knew this is what I wanted to do. So um, I, I just kept going for it. And uh, luckily, here I am. So Here we all are. So, yeah. so, okay, so let's focus on this coming season. What's, what do you got in store? Well, this coming season, um, I, I actually just got off the phone with the processor. We're, we're going to try and get into some farmer's markets. I, I want to do a lot of uh, direct market right from the farm type stuff. I've got some co-ops lined up. So um, really just trying to get our beef out there. Um, we're not doing as much on the lamb right now. Um, and also kind of increase my flock. Um, I'll probably be doing an egg share with a friend of mine who runs a CSA in Quincy, California. Um, so that egg share should be pretty good. Um, the farmer's market's all around here. We don't have anyone that really sells eggs at the farmer's market, so we're going to dive into that. Um, and then eventually I would like to, um, with my 
Well, we're, we're trying to start a grains co-op here. So me and a couple of my friends uh, that have a little larger tract of land are trying to get a grain co-op going for feed, seed, and then I'd like to move into some direct marketed flowers and that sort of thing. So, you know, that'll be slowly coming. That's in my five-year plan um, because there's so much infrastructure that's needed for that. So um, just getting out there and... Uh, and, and letting people know we're here. And, and actually, you know, um, we actually have more of a need for our product than we actually have products, so that feels good. And um, tell me about the lamb. And, you know, I just been, I just was in California uh, and was witnessing an explosion of new uh, pastured producers. So there's, like, new pork companies, new lamb companies, there's like a whole bunch of new sustainable meat, and a lot of it operating on, you know, pretty big scale, uh-huh. serving uh, Bay Area markets and farmers markets and restaurants and stuff. Um, yeah. Are you t- tuned into that, that kind of scene at all to be able to reflect on what's going on with pastured meat in the marketplace? Um, well, just basically in my own community, um, we do have quite a few people that are starting to look into and move into grass-fed beef. There's probably, oh, I reckon about seven or eight ranches around here that are kind of dabbling into that, and I think some of them kind of do a grain-fed and a grass-fed beef offering. Um, There's quite a few people out here doing lamb as well, Pastured. Um, some friends of mine are trying to get into some pastured pork. Um, we just bought some from them, and it's awesome. So we actually have a, a really great beginning farmer, young farmer movement um, in this area. Being close to Reno, being close to Quincy, um, which is a small college town, real hit. Um, there's, there's just it, it's amazing. Um, the amount of people that are coming out of the woodwork and starting to starting to produce and get into the soil and you know wanting to do this kind of deal. So. Well, and as you say, the demand is definitely growing. Also, I mean, I, it's really wonderful to be in a situation where um, the appetite in the marketplace is there to support the initiatives, and especially during startup when there's you know you really do need to be able to sell your product. Yeah, uh, and, you know, we're lucky to have communities. I mean, we live close to a lot of recreational areas um, where people have uh, second and third homes. And uh, so, they, you know, they come up from generally from Southern Cal in the Bay Area, and uh, they're already involved in uh, uh, supporting this type of agriculture. So when they come up here, they're happy to find that it's, it's happening here as well. Um, I was just crunching some numbers, and uh, we probably have within a 50-mile radius about a half a million people that you could get to as a small business. Um, So there's definitely some market share here. There's plenty to go around for everyone that's doing this. Um, We started, well, I I started a couple years, the Pluma Sierra Sustainable Farmers Guild, because although I do have a bunch of neighbors here that are involved with agriculture, they're more conventional-minded, and I wanted to have a community. I got really excited about everything you guys were doing, so I thought, why don't we try and get something like that going in our community? So 
uh, we've got a little group there, and we get together, and, you know, we have uh, potlucks and kind of throw ideas at each other. And right now we're just working on the grain co-op to see how we can, you know, get some feed, affordable feed. Right now we buy organic feed, and I think it's like 30 something dollars a bag. So I know, it's so hard. Oh. Yes, and that's not sustainable. <laughs> so um, we're just trying to find ways that we can be sustainable and uh, get our own feed and those sorts of things. You know. Well, there are many other um, cooperative feed purchase. I thought you were saying a grain co-op like you're going to grow grains, but you're saying just buy in bulk. Well, yeah, no, we, we want to grow our own grain. Got it. Yeah. And so, but just as a first step, you want to coordinate purchases. Yeah, also. and the first step is just to coordinate purchases that would bring the price down. Um, so people have been acquiring grain bins and stuff for on-farm storage. Um, so that, you know, because no one wants to really truck up feed unless they're doing it in multiple tons. And uh, that makes right. sense to me as well. Yeah, there's um, you know, I'm happy to chat with you on email offline about some of the efforts I know about, um, and even just negotiating with local growers to do um, like totally conventional guys and be like, listen, we're good for this much grain. Would you consider doing a no spray? You know, it doesn't even have to be certified. Right. Um, just as a way of starting to build capacity locally, because we just are surrounded by corn and we're buying in all this organic grain from Canada and Vermont, and, you know, ultimately yeah. we'd really like it to be grown in our, va- in our valley. Anyway, that's an offline discussion. <laughs> well, you know, but, the, um, the, the great thing about this valley is even the conventional farmers don't do a lot of spraying here. Um, and I, I do have a source of seed that I get as far as my rye seed from my neighbor just across the valley. He has the only combine, <laughs> combine in the valley. Um, and he uh, he uses it, uh, I mean, he sells seed here locally, so I get it from him. And then we have a wheat breeder that's about 60 miles northeast of me. Um, and so we can get wheat seed there. So, um, so and those guys don't spray. So, yeah, we, we do have those guys there as well. Well, you've got that advantage of such a nice dry climate, I guess. Yeah, we do. And, all you know, that, that's, all that that's hot the game wind around after here. that, off the- Central Valley. The game here is dry land agriculture, and so that's that's you know kind of what I'm up against is just trying to find varieties of things that grow in a dry land climate. And uh, my big thing is just trying to uh, get into a no-till production model where we're using cover crops, getting some biomass on there before we go in with our cash crop, building up our soil, and getting some water retention in there and uh, keeping erosion from happening with water and wind because it's, it's pretty windy out here. And then, you know, when things start to melt off, we get a lot of water running through here. And uh, just last year, we had one of our neighbors put in an irrigation pivot, and he kind of moved the water channel. So we're starting to get a good brunt of water from uh, spring runoff coming through our place. So that's something we have to contend with as well. Well, there's... Just awesome work. I mean, I've just been studying a little bit um, dry land because I was visiting these farmers in, up near Taos who were farming uh-huh. with mules. Uh, now they call it Genesis Farm. Uh-huh. Uh, they're pretty amazing. But anyway, and them and 
this guy, Thule, he has a company called Thule's Trees. And both of them are, you know, really dry land, high altitude, you know, low biomass in the soil, and, and both really, really focused on mulching and creating a microclimate. It's, it's just amazing results. Like, this guy is growing an orchard um, up there in New Mexico. Forget how many thousands of feet, I'm sorry. But he's called Thule's yeah. Trees, and he just showed the pictures of before and after. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's actually amazing. It's actually really amazing what human, you know, human commitment to place can yield. I mean, obviously, we have a civilization. It's kind of amazing also. But this orchard is uh, very impressive. Yeah. So it, you're, it sounds so like... you're, But you're not focusing on trees. You're focusing on um, pastures, and you're talking about no-till for vegetables. Is that right? Well, I'm... I'm... I'm actually talking about no-till for uh, grain crops. Yeah. So um, we have native perennial wheat grasses. We have cereal rice. We have Italian rice. We have brome, fescues um, that go around here. Um, Quite a bit of different weeds um, that all kind of make up uh, the chemistry of our soil here. But... uh, and we do have lots of earthworms. This actually, before we moved to this ranch, it had sat for three years with no one living here. Um, and before that, no one's ever farmed this place chemically. So we have that going for us. That's an advantage to us. Um, but, you know, they kind of let just all the animals and cows run around here from what I can entail. I don't know. I've never talked to the last person that lived here, but it seems like uh, there was... Animals just cruising around, and there wasn't any rhyme or reason to the grazing. So I've been trying to move my cows around um, rotationally, uh, trying to make my grass last because we are in a dry land area, and we're also in a drought. So it's been really hard to, uh, you know, when you're running on 60 acres, you have to put some more acreage when you're running cows and sheep and stuff like that, or you can run out of grass pretty quick. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, and, we as we learned from the holistic, oh, what was that? Well, just having enough time to rest. I mean, that's the thing that's been so amazing, and uh, been doing more and more of this holistic management training and realizing, you know, the resting period is so important. And if you go around chasing every little bite, then you end up destroying your future resource base. But it's right. when you've got nowhere else to go, it's, it's a big. You know, it's a big challenge. And and that's exactly it, Severin. I mean, especially when you're new to an area, because most of the ground's been taken up by people that have been here for three and five generations. So um, it's hard to put together enough ground to put an operation together that's any size. So if you're on this small piece of ground, you certainly have to be a good steward and uh, <laughs> make sure you uh, don't run yourself out of grass. And uh, we have some really good neighbors that don't practice agriculture that have opened up um, their small 20-acre fields to us just for the grazing to keep down fire danger and have been really happy with our grazing techniques. Um, I guess they had some people on there before that just kind of eat it down the dirt and left and left the fences torn up. And, you know, so when you get it, if you uh, do a correct stewardship on someone's ground, 
the word of mouth gets out, and uh, yeah. and people open up their properties to you. So um, they they are actually also interested in getting us to maybe work their ground for some hay production too, which is great. That's kind of where I'm also at is um, just being able to produce enough hay to get through the winter. Um, I had intended to cut hay last summer, and there it just wasn't there. So um, we're buying hay right now, and uh, with the hay supplies in such shortage, it, it's really been <laughs> quite expensive. So um, that's another thing is just yeah, it's, it's, going. you know that thing of of having to build up from scratch and based on relationships. Um, you know, but I, I again, I talked to, um, I went to that workshop of uh, Jim Garrish where he talked about um, his own experience and as a young, as a you know, as a new rancher and getting getting trusted by other by landowners and stewarding more and more land. And, and you know, his vision is that people will start getting paid for good stewardship. You know, that the value that you bring to the to the soil and to the land. Um, will be recognized. You know, it sounds a little bit optimistic, but I'm I'm an optimist also. And then, I, I you know, am we'll too. be able. To <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, we can see. I, I an eternal know. optimist. <laughs> yeah, and and you know that people people who are stewards of the land will and who are you know qualified managers, rangeland managers um, with animals will be able to capture some of that value themselves. And it won't just be a kind of un, um, uneconomically realized, uh, you know, factor. And yeah. you know, even especially as we start to rec- you know realize all the carbon in the soil that we're able to put there through good management. And like, you know, obviously, carbon has water benefits and and soil life benefits, but it also has you know atmospheric benefits. And so that's like the edge that I'm kind of chasing right now is. You know how do you how do you quantify that in a way that um, is good, you know is rigorous and measurable, and how do you make sure that people are are well trained to be able to manage it in an adaptive way? Because you know, all fine and good when there's plenty of water, you can be a great rancher, right? Um, but when you got water stress, then um, the economic decisions that you have to make and you know your stocking rates just have to go down. Right, anyway. and you know, as soon as the last <laughs> blade of grass is gone, you're done. <laughs> There's nothing else to feed. So if you haven't been a good manager, um, you sure could manage yourself out of this business. And um, quite a few of the people around here that are bigger uh, operators have wheel lines and they have, um, you know, irrigation of some sort, um, and it costs a lot of money to run those. So when it's a drought year, you you know that the hay prices are going to be up there real high. And um, yeah, I talked to a farmer in um, Georgia, and he said he calculated just because he 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 inherited an operation with a bunch of um, pivot sprinklers, and he said every time it rains an inch during prime like July, he said uh-huh. that rain is worth eleven thousand dollars per inch to him. That he doesn't have I to bet. pay. Because <laughs> the figures that I get from uh, some of my neighbors are that it's anywhere from 150 to about $200 a day to run those suckers. So, um, 
and that's that's out of my economic <laughs> realm of reality. So, um, and you know, I draw um, a lot of energy from a lot of producers that are actually out in the Midwest, um, like the Practical Farmers of Iowa. I just love. Um, I'm really into trialing things and experimenting and seeing what works. And uh, like I said, using the cover crops. I'm really. I was just sitting down here on the Peaceful Valley Farm Supply, which is uh, down in Nevada City area, and getting ready to order up some cover crops and uh, just kind of coming up with a plan for this year. And uh, so. Yeah, there's good people in farming. That's for sure. Yeah, I, you just have to find a mentor that is farming uh, the way that, you know, you kind of want to farm. And that can be kind of hard in my area, um, not because people aren't good producers. They're just producing to a different uh, production model. So, so we don't have I'm, any I'm, more, I'm more time that... to play with, but I, but I wanted to give you a chance to just, Remind listeners about your uh, local group that you ta- that you founded that you might want to invite people to hang out with, and any and just like tag any other resources for folks who are thinking about moving into your area um, where they should go for support. Okay, well we uh, have the Plumas Sierra Sustainable Farmers Guild, and we are a group of like-minded, sustainably-minded people. Um, we don't claim to be sustainable, but we do claim to be working pretty hard at it. And uh, we love to have anyone that wants to join come and uh, throw their ideas and uh, just the camaraderie of it. And uh, we have some farmer incubator programs that are happening in Quincy. We're trying to get some stuff going through Feather River College um, so we can get our new crop of new farmers online here. And uh, so Feather River College is a another uh, avenue, um, and uh, there, there's quite a few organizations, so if anyone is looking at moving to the northeastern California, Quincy, Sierra Valley region, Truckee area, um, they're more than welcome to call me and touch bases with me on that, and uh, there's just, awesome. just a lot Farmer happening in Chino. There's a lot happening There's a lot in happening in Chino, Chico. Chico is also a great place. Um, don't get down there near enough, but, you know, uh, just, I mean, that's where agriculture is really happening in California, is down in the Sacramento, San Joaquin areas. So, um, Well, I thank yeah, you so much I, I, for I'm joining us today. Excited. What's that? I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's great talking to you guys. I love your organization. Um and uh, well, I guess we'll that's try and let's try and cross paths sometimes. Yeah, let's try and meet sometime. I want to come and see your zone. I, I would love to have you guys anytime. And if there's any greenhorn ha- happenings in California, in the northern part of California, definitely uh, let us know. We'd like to try and make well, it over. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, we got uh, that gives me a perfect lead in to tell you about um, upcoming events. Um, we just had a bunch of mixers this past week. This is heavy conference season for us. Um, upcoming on the calendar, there's a talk on agrarianism at Yale Divinity School. We've got uh, Farm Hack Michigan. 
we've got farm hack uh, with horses um, in Pennsylvania. That's later in the season. Uh, we're doing a big seed circus in October in Richmond, California. Um, so that's oh, okay. one that's good for you. Um, yeah, that's a great a, one for me. There's about 250 acres of open land in Richmond that aren't built on and could be farmed. And increasingly, a lot of urban farm people are looking there and working there and starting farms and operations. So that's, we figured it may awesome. as well. I've lived in the East Bay, so I, I think that's great. Yeah, Richmond is a really important place for environmental justice. Um, great growing climate. Um, amazing resources there in terms of greenhouses and so close to markets. So yeah. if we can build a strong urban-rural farm connection, then that would be pretty super. Okay, well, that's that a lot be. already. I've said too much. But please do check out the events page. It's new. Our website events page is much better than ever before. And talk to All you right. next time on Greenhorn Radio. All right. Thank you so Bye. much, Severin. And I would like to get a shout-out to Haley as well. Thanks. Woohoo! Go Haley! Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.